Alright, I want to welcome everyone this morning to our final teaching in the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn this morning to Genesis 50. Genesis 50. And I want you to think about, uh, and I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but this is concluding a really long study at Grace Community Church. And we've jumped in and out of the book of Genesis several different times. My guess would be if we'd have gone straight through the book of Genesis, it would have been at least two years, if not more. But we started this book four or five years ago as a local church. And in the faithfulness of God, we finish it today. And so just as a reminder to us of how much life has happened in this local church since we started this book together four or five years ago, I want to ask two different groups of people to raise their hand this morning. So raise your hand and just leave it raised for just a moment. If in the last four or five years you have become a member of Grace Community Church, Please raise your hand. And one more group. I want to ask you to raise your hand. Leave your hands up. Leave your hands up. I want to ask you to raise your hand if in the last four or five years, and I know some people can't place this exactly, but if you believe that there was a possibility that you were converted to faith in Jesus Christ in the last four or five years, please raise your hand. Please raise your hand. Leave your hands up. Now, I want you to think about that representation before us this morning of how much life has happened in this local church in four or five, four or five years of how many things have changed. And this is a representation. You can put your hands down now. Sorry. Uh, that's a little representation of the faithfulness of God to do exactly what Jesus said he would do. He said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And the Lord's doing that. He's doing that in our midst. Just a four or five year sample of the faithfulness of God. I'll tell you one other thing that that reminds me of. Just these little markers of time. Five years. Is that ought to remind us that we don't have much time left in this world. We just don't. We just don't. Some of us might have four, five, maybe six more of those five-year markers left in this world. We're not promised one more. And then we're done. We only have a little bit of time in this world to bring glory to Jesus Christ. To make our mark among the nations. To make our mark in this city. To pass through this world trusting the Lord. Living for the glory of of God, we don't have as much time as we think we do. So we want to lean in this morning and we want to ask God to seal, S E A L, this message of Genesis on our hearts. We want to walk away as a local church from this book and we want the message of Genesis pressed upon our souls. And so we want to ask the Lord to help us to hear the preaching of the word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord. And just as we sang to you, God, our humble plea this morning, Lord, is show us Christ. As we gather around your holy word this morning, show us Christ, Lord. God, reveal your nature, your character, your faithfulness, and your promise to your people. Lord, we want to thank you for your faithfulness to us as a local church. Lord, you have been faithful, God. You have shepherded, shepherded this church through many different seasons since we started this book many years ago. And Lord, we ask, God, that you would make us more like Jesus, that you would cause our time in Holy Scripture not to be in vain. But that you would visit, visit us with power from on high to make us like our Savior. Make us like Jesus. Lord, do it even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, I want to start us off as we walk away from the book of Genesis. I want to just take a stab at summarizing the main themes that we see running through this book. That you would have some sort of concept 
Walking away from the book of Genesis. What is this about? What is the main thing um, that the book of Genesis contributes to the story of Scripture? And I believe I have this on your study guide this morning, but I want to read this thesis. The book of Genesis is about the creator God of salvation and judgment. That's Genesis 1 through 11. God made all things and we see both of these glorious uh, attributes of God, both of these glimpses of his character in those early chapters of Genesis. He's a God who saves. He's a God who judges. He's the creator of all things. This creator God of salvation and judgment has made a covenant commitment to raise up his promised seed. And that's a reference that you've heard so many times to Genesis 3.15. That right as sin enters into this world, there's an announcement of the gospel in the form of a seed, an offspring. An offspring of the woman who was prophesied that he would crush the head of the serpent. The skull crushing seed of the woman. That's the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. A covenant commitment to raise up the promised seed through the lineage of Abraham. And that starts in Genesis chapter 12. That these promises that God has made, they begin to zone in on this one man and his family. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And upon the arrival of this promised seed, we are told that God will save His people And establish them in the promised land. So we have the seed promise and the land promise and the generations, the lineage of the family of Abraham. All these things are coming together. And this is the message of the book of Genesis. The faithfulness of God to keep His covenant promises. We're going to see this final chapter is going to weave together a lot of these themes. And so we're going to read God's Word, Genesis chapter 50. We're going to read this together. And I want to ask you to quickly stand for the reading of the Word of God. Thus says the Lord, verse 1, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him, And kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for seventy days. Verse four. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father and then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only the children, their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, 
to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because of the evil done to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Makar, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore. Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Thus says the Lord to Grace Community Church this morning. You may be seated. The final chapter of Genesis begins, it picks up where we left off with a story of the beloved son and his beloved father. And that's the story that's presented to us in the final chapters of the book of Genesis. Joseph was the favored son of Jacob. But there was a separation between this beloved father and this beloved son for over 30 years When the brothers of Joseph sold their little brother into slavery, lied to their father about it, this beloved son and this beloved father were ripped apart from each other. And when they were reunited in the land of Egypt, they were reunited for the final 17 years of Jacob's life. And there's some symmetry here. The first 17 years of Joseph's life was spent with the beloved father, the beloved son and the beloved father. And in beautiful symmetry and unexpected grace from God, the final 17 years of Jacob's life is spent with his beloved son in Egypt. Now, if you remember back in chapter 46, one of the things that God promised as upon this reunion, God promised that Joseph would close Jacob's eyes. Now, this is a metaphor in the ancient Near East that he would watch his father die and he would literally close the eyes of his dead father upon his death. He would be there. He would die uh, basically in the arms of his beloved son. And that's what exactly what we see in verse one. The brothers are all gathered around the dying patriarch and they watch their daddy breathe his last breath. In verse 1, and Joseph is standing right there to close the eyes of his father. The text tells us in verse 1 that this mighty prince of Egypt, the one who had the authority to bind at his word, all the authority of Egypt, 
The Bible tells us that this mighty man began to weep and he pressed his face in verse one against the dead face of his father. And he began to kiss and to weep his dead daddy. So we have this vivid description of Joseph mourning the death of his father, Jacob. And just taking a little license, we can only imagine what this would have sounded like. Of course, in the Hebrew language, would have sounded something like this. A broken hearted daddy. Don't go, daddy. Daddy, don't leave. Daddy. He was weeping over the dead body of his beloved father. He would never see his daddy again In this world, his dad was gone. His dad died. He departed out of this world. And so what we have in verse one is Joseph is weeping in a world of death. Joseph is weeping in a world of death. Now, the book of Genesis has been very careful to remind us that things were never supposed to be this way. This is the same book that began in chapter 1 and chapter 2 with God pronouncing over this creation that everything that God had made was good. And not only good, it was very good. There was no sin. And there was no death. And yet we have death like a criminal intruding into this very good creation That God has made. And the book of Genesis shows us that the root of death, the connection of the intrusion of death, is sin. Is sin. Romans 5.12, excuse me, it tells us that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And then the Bible tells us, thus death spread to all men. Because all sin. And this is the tracing of the book of Genesis. God made this world very, very good. It was never supposed to be this way. But sin intruded into this good creation of God. And death through sin. Genesis has been very careful to draw our attention to death as a result of a sin-soaked world. Turn quickly with me to Genesis chapter 5. The writer of Genesis has been preparing us for this from the very beginning of this book. Genesis 5 verse 5. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. See if you can catch a pattern here. Verse 8. Adam's son. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Verse 11. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Verse 14. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. Now, I'm from Pearl, Mississippi. I love simple things. I love it when God's word just breaks it down very, very clear. And it's not hard at all. The Bible is shouting at us that this is true for every human being who lives in a post Genesis three world. Sin entered the world in Genesis chapter three and death through sin. And so every one of us can insert our name into this formula that we see in Genesis chapter 5. So and so lived so many years and he or she died. That's the reality that we're faced with in the book of Genesis. This is a world of death. This same book that began with a perfect creation. Genesis 1 and 2. The final chapter, Genesis 50, there's two different accounts in that chapter that we just read of death. The death of Jacob, and then we have the death of Joseph. And so these are 
drastic bookends. You want to know the story of Scripture well? The story of Genesis well? These are the bookends. Creation in the Garden of Eden. Chapter 1. And then the same book ends in chapter 50 in a coffin in the land of Egypt. That's the message of Genesis. Creation to coffin. The beginning of sin. The entrance of sin into the God's very good creation. And this is a reminder for every one of us in the room that we live in this post-Genesis 3 world. This world of death. And I want you to think about that for yourselves. But I also want you to consider this morning that that reality is true for every person that you love. Not only for yourself. But for every person that you genuinely love in this world, that person lives in a post-Genesis 3 world, a world of death. And that means that one of the things that's going to mark our pilgrimage through this world of death is weeping. One of the marks of life in the real world, in this world that we live in, is weeping. Weeping. Joseph weeps for his dead father in Genesis 50. Later in the Old Testament, we have the account of a holy man, King David, weeping for his dead son, Absalom. Gut-wrenching pain. Oh, Absalom, my son. Oh, Absalom, my son. Never will he see him In this world, again, we come to the New Testament, we see a picture of perfect humanity. Our Lord Jesus Christ who knew no sin and He stands outside the tomb of His beloved friend Lazarus and the perfect man Jesus. Shortest verse in the New Testament, He weeps. As He he takes in the effects of sin in this cursed world, Jesus weeps. He weeps. And this is true not only for Christ and not only for holy men and women of old. Weeping is true for every person that aims to follow Jesus as Lord. This is a reality from Genesis to Revelation in the Word of God. That part of our pilgrimage in this world will be marked by weeping. In fact, some of the deepest hurts that we will experience in this world of death is watching and experiencing those that we love exiting this world and making a transition into the world to come. It's the deepest pain that we know. Now, I want to say this really quickly. And I don't single out certain groups very often, but I do. I I feel especially burdened, and I want to press this for just a moment, that one of the things that we're seeing in our generation is an eroding of a theology of suffering in the Christian church. And it's happening in many different ways, but but one of the ways that it's happening right now in our generation, especially younger folks, And we're so thankful. I mean, we've seen so many visitors in the past several months uh, from local colleges. You're peeking your head in, coming with your friends. You're hearing the preaching of the word. You're being encouraged. But I don't want to make the mistake that everyone who visits Grace Community Church is coming from this place where you have been taught rightly and soundly about theology, the doctrine of the word of God, and specifically the theology of of suffering. And I want to use this weeping in verse 1 to warn us about versions of Christianity that make the normal Christian experience not suffering and weeping in a world of death, but signs and wonders in a world of miracles. We're seeing that all around us. That is being uh, uh, trafficked all over the world. And I'll mention one place specifically, Bethel, California. 
This false teaching and these false teachers who don't have a theology of suffering, they're transporting this false gospel all over the world that the normal Christian experience is not suffering and weeping in a world of death. It's signs and wonders and spiritual fireworks in a world of miracles. And I want to encourage you, if you have been influenced by false versions of Christianity like this, I want to encourage you, get yourself a theology of suffering. Get yourself a theology of suffering. I want to remind us that if we don't have this in order, it dishonors God because it's unbiblical and it hurts people. It hurts people. You need a gospel that you can preach to a cancer patient who's got three weeks to live in this world. You need something to offer sinners among the nations besides the best life than they can possibly have right now. And so, brothers and sisters, don't get these things mixed up. Don't confuse what's coming to us at the second coming of Jesus with what is ours right now at the first coming of Jesus. It is at His second coming that death is destroyed forever. It is at His second coming where there will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more death, no more weeping. But until then, brothers and sisters, we weep in this world. We weep in the world of death. The Bible promises Christians that's not all we do. 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us very clearly that we don't weep, we don't grieve like those who have no hope, not for Christians. We grieve in this world with the hope of the gospel. The Bible promises that weeping Christians will be comforted by God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be. Comforted. That's the promise of your God. Not no suffering, but comfort in the midst of suffering. Beautiful promise of the gospel. The Bible goes as far as to tell us that there's a day coming where Jesus himself will wipe away the tears from our eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more weeping. But until that day, we weep. Like Joseph over the dead body of his beloved daddy. This is the world of death. Not only Joseph, verse 2 shows us that all of Egypt mourned the the death of Jacob. All of Egypt entered into uh, the suffering, the mourning of this patriarch. And this shows us the love that Egypt had for Joseph. I mean, they loved him. This man saved Egypt. He was the savior of Egypt. This is Joseph, the one who saved us. And his daddy died and they saw Joseph racked with pain and grief. And the whole nation entered in to his suffering. There was was a national funeral, state-sponsored funeral. All of Egypt is grieving. And then, beginning in verse 2, we have this elaborate story in Genesis 50 about the preparation and the burial of Jacob. The preparation and the burial. I'll mention a, a, a few of these bullet points really quickly. We're told that his body was embalmed in verse 2. Now, that makes a lot of sense, right? If you're about to take a dead body... On a several week journey out of Egypt and into Canaan through a desert climate, it makes a lot of sense, right? That you would prepare that body not to decay on the way. And I would, uh, this is how I read that, that he was embalmed, not for any weird religious Egyptian reasons. But for pragmatic reasons that we're told in this text, they're about to carry. This would be like us walking to Dallas, Texas to bury someone. Okay, this is a funeral on the scale that we've never seen before. Verse six, Pharaoh gives the command and an entire entourage, a multitude goes with Joseph to Canaan. Verse seven, listen to the description. All the servants of Pharaoh the elders of his household, 
all the elders of the land of Egypt. That's the high brass. The men of power. The political men in Egypt. Now it's one thing, like if somebody in this room dies, and all these political people show up at your funeral. It's another thing if they walk to Dallas, Texas to bury you, right? I mean, we've never seen states, state mournings on, on, a, on a national scale to this degree. Verse 8, all the chosen family made the journey minus a few small children. And then in verse 9, we're told that they had an Egyptian military escort. They leave out of the safety of the land of Egypt. They go into the land of Canaan. They're not worried at all. Because they got a military escort to accompany them on this funeral procession. Now think about this. I mean, this is so different from the world that we live in. We're told that they mourned the death of Jacob for 70 days. 70 days they mourned his death. Took a several week journey to Canaan. And then in verse 10... After this long journey, they land right at the River Jordan. Verse 10 tells us they make a very great and grievous lamentation for seven days. More weeping in the world of death. This is the picture in Genesis 50. Now, a, care, <clears throat> sorry, a careful reading of this story ought to force us to ask... A really important question. Why are we told all this stuff? I mean, this is interesting. I mean, we never experienced anything like this. And it's certainly interesting. But why are we told all these details about the funeral procession to bury Jacob? Now, back up just a little bit. We don't have anything approaching this amount of detail in any of the other patriarchs. And in the death of Abraham and his burial, nope. In the death of Isaac and his burial, nope. And even at the end of this chapter, when Joseph dies, nothing to this scale is mentioned. So we're scratching our head and we're thinking, we know the Holy Spirit. He doesn't waste words. This is not just to scratch our um, intellectual itch. What's the point here? What's the reason that this story is laid out for us. And like you've heard us tell you so many times, these details and the placement of this story are intentional. God knows what He's doing when He's recording His Word. And this whole elaborate funeral procession is meant to focus our attention on the land promise in the book of Genesis. That promise of land that God made to Abraham Isaac and Jacob. Turn with me really quickly back to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. This is the first time that this land promise is spelled out, but it's also given to all the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at what God promises. Genesis 15 verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Saying, to your offspring, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Promise made. The God who cannot lie promised this land to Abraham and to his offspring. And so, by the time we get to the close of the book of Genesis, that promise has been made, but that promise has not been realized yet. In fact, what we're seeing is the exact opposite happened as the book of Genesis closes. The chosen family is not setting up shop in the promised land. They're actually preparing to go into exile in Egypt for 400 years. But even this was prophesied. Look with me at Genesis 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, 
and we'll be servants there and we'll be afflicted for 400 years. And so what we see is that God promised both of these things. They're going to get the land, but there's going to be this 400 year gap of sojourning and bondage and slavery. And so this whole funeral procession in Genesis 50 is meant to focus our attention on this one cave and this one location in the land of Canaan, the cave of Machpelah, the cave of Machpelah in verse 12. Now, we've mentioned this several times as we've worked our way through the book of Genesis. This is interesting stuff. This is intentional stuff. That this little bitty plot of land is the only piece of land that the patriarchs, the chosen family, actually hold title to in the promised land. Now they own everything else by the promise of God, but they actually hold legal title, a deed, to this one little bitty plot of land right in the middle of Canaan. And guess what? It's a burial plot. Abraham bought it to bury his dead. And we're told in the book of Genesis that all the patriarchs are buried in this one particular cave. Machpelah. It's, a, it's, a, it's being used as a tomb for the chosen family right in the middle of the promised land. As the sons of Jacob make their journey... This was their destination. This is what they were aiming for the whole time. Get me to that cave. This is where Jacob said, put my bones in that cave. And so they're standing there. They make the journey. They're fulfilling their oath to their father. And we're told that they place the embalmed body of their daddy, Jacob, in that same resting place as their great-granddaddy, Abraham, And their granddaddy, Isaac. They put their daddy, Jacob, right beside them. We're also told that that Sarah, Abraham's wife, is there. And also Rebecca, Isaac's wife, she's there too. And so try to picture that. You have this grievous lamentation, grievous lamentation of this dead corpse. And you open up this burial plot and you place him, your daddy, Right beside the decaying skeleton of your great-granddaddy and your granddaddy. And all this happens in the cave of Machpelah. And so this cave is a memorial of death. It's it's a burial place. In a similar way that uh, burial places today are memorials of death. They're a place where we remember those who have died. But I want you to understand... That in the Genesis narrative, this particular part of plot of ground is more than a memorial of death. This is actually for the chosen family, a memorial of their faith in God's promise, their faith, their trust that God will, in fact, give them the land. And so it's a symbol of faith in a world of death. Yes, he has died. Yes, all of the patriarchs have died. But God said that He would give the land to Abraham and to his offspring. So they plant these bones like a seed in this cave awaiting the fulfillment of God's promise. If you think about the brothers at the entrance to that cave, if you think about their faith being like an arrow, a faith claim, A stabbing a claim in the ground in the middle of the promised land. A renewal of the promise of God. The bullseye, the target of that arrow of faith is the land promise. They're not just believing whatever they want to believe. They're trusting in the word of God. God, you said to the offspring of Abraham, you would give this land. So they're reaffirming their faith in God's word. And then in verse 14, we're told that they returned to Egypt. And that's important. They got faith, they got faith, they got faith, and then they leave 
And nobody, not one of these brothers ever sees the promised land again. Not one of them. One way to read that is poor brothers. They just made a bunch of stuff up. They believed God, believed God, believed God and died and didn't get anything. The right way to read that is they were trusting God to fulfill that land promise beyond death. The Bible tells us they were not looking for an immediate political fulfillment that God would give them this land. In fact, we are explicitly told this in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, we are told that these patriarchs were looking for something beyond death. That means that at the cave of Machpelah, they were exercising resurrection faith in the promise of God. That God's going to keep His word in spite of death. They're looking at death. It's right before them, but they're reaffirming their faith in God's promise. Trusting in His word beyond death. They believed the promise of God was stronger than death. If they didn't, why else would they make this week's long journey? Listen to Hebrews 11, verse 13. This is awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. These all died in faith. That's the patriarchs. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is a this is a resurrection faith in the promise of God. These brothers are standing at this cave and they're looking past death through death and trusting in the promises of God. Lord, bring us that heavenly city, not that earthly city. Bring us our real inheritance, the unfading one, not the fading things of this world. This is faith in the promise of God. As they return back to Egypt in verse 15, we are told that these brothers feared Joseph. Verse 15, these brothers say it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for what we have done. Now, what a terrifying thought, first of all, that you would have a real fear in your life that the one with all authority was coming for you to pay you what you're due. That the, the one with all power, not the weak one, but the one over all of Egypt was coming with power and authority to execute retribution. It's a terrifying thought to be judged by Joseph. The only problem was that their fear was completely unfounded. It was completely unfounded because for 17 years, the final chapters of Genesis tell us that Joseph faithfully loved his brothers. He cared for them in famine and all their family. He faithfully loved them, showed mercy and nothing but kindness to his brothers for 17 years. And so their fears were real, but their fears were completely unfounded. They were being haunted by what the Bible calls an evil conscience. An evil conscience was blinding them to Joseph's grace and mercy. What is an evil conscience? You could explain this in two ways. If your conscience is not working right, it means it's not alarming you when you sin and you break God's law. And there are people 
who the Bible says have a seared conscience. They sin against God. They break His law. They don't care. They sin against God. They break His law. They don't lose an ounce of sleep. They hear the warnings of the righteous judgment of the holy God falling upon those who do not repent. And they do not care. That's an evil conscience. You don't want an evil conscience. Some people define a bad conscience as just feeling bad about your sin. That's a good thing. In certain contexts, that's a good thing. We would never go to a child who had some sensory disorder where they couldn't feel pain in their hands. And that child could put his hand on a hot stove and not feel anything. We would never celebrate. Man, what a gift. What a gift this child has been given. No, that's a malfunction. That's not, that's not what was intended. Our conscience is meant to alarm us when we break God's law. But there's another sense that our consciences can be evil. And that's when our consciences condemn us, listen, for sin that has been canceled by King Jesus. An evil conscience. The Bible tells us that we're supposed to draw near to God and rid ourselves, wash ourselves from an evil conscience. Your conscience is evil when it condemns you for sin that Jesus has canceled. Evil conscience is more aware of sin than grace. You're listening to the radio. You know, you, old school, you turn the knob up. It gives you a number. You know, say, man, I listened and the volume was 15. And if I really want to jam out to something, I'll turn it up to 25. An evil conscience hears the condemnation of the law of God at a 25. And yet the promises of the mercy of Christ is a little bitty three instead of the exact opposite in the word of God. We're told that where sin abounds, Romans six, grace abounds all the more. The gospel is stronger than your sin. Stronger than your sin. These brothers had been shown grace by Joseph. But their evil conscience was blinding them to Joseph's mercy, his word of pardon. The brothers were more aware of sin than of grace. Verse 17, as these brothers show suspicion towards Joseph, unbelief in his kindness and his mercy, verse 17 tells us that they spoke in such a way that made the prince of Egypt weep. This is not just a mistake. It grieved his heart. 17 years he had faithfully shown mercy to them. Was it all for nothing? Was it all just to be set aside in suspicion? Does he he really love us? Has he really forgiven? Is he really a man of grace at the right hand of the king? It made Joseph weep. It caused grief to his heart. And here is the circumstance... That many Christians find themselves in. A similar scenario. Guilty before God and know it. Yet doubting the mercy that Christ has promised to all who trust Him. You ever done that in your Christian life? You ever been more aware of your sin than of Jesus' great forgiveness? You ever had a wicked thought like that? That your sin... Your little puny sin was somehow greater than the strength and the saving power of King Jesus. You ever done that? Brothers and sisters, you ever been more aware of your sin than Christ's grace? Listen to John Owen. He tells us that the greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay on the Father... The greatest unkindness you can do to Him is to not believe that He loves you. It's to not believe that He loves you. To doubt the love of Christ. Think about it. What more could He do? In the same way, what more could Joseph have done for his brothers? Showed tremendous kindness. 
And 10,000 times more, what more could Jesus do for you to prove that He loves you, to prove that He's a gracious King at the right hand of God? We can lay a great sorrow upon the Lord. Joseph has tremendous authority, and yet he responds with grace to doubting sinners. This is a sweet picture. Verse 19, he could have told him, get out of here. What are you talking about guessing my kindness? Look at what he says. He says, do not fear. Do not fear. Doubting ones. He says, for am I in the place of God? Verse 21. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. And I want to encourage you this morning. That's a glimpse. That's a type and a foreshadowing of Jesus. What a reminder of our gracious King. That when we struggle with doubt, when we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When we bring that to this merciful King at the right hand of God, He doesn't cast us out. He shows us great compassion and kindness. He doesn't turn us away. He speaks kindly to us. He comforts His people. He's the King of grace. Glorious reminder of the Gospel and the tenderness of Jesus. Foreshadowed in the life of Joseph. The final paragraph in the book of Genesis tells us That Joseph uses the last moments of his life to draw our attention back to the promises of God. Verse 24, let's read it again. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Now, you know this, if you've been with us in recent weeks, all this talk about bones and dying. What's the, what, what is this about again? Hebrews 11 interprets these two sentences for us. And they tell us that jo- Joseph is speaking in faith. He's prophesying specifically of the exodus. That God will bring up His people out of the land of Egypt. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Promises made. In the end of the book of Genesis... Joseph stuffed dead, cold, and in a coffin. Promises made. And as we continue to read the Old Testament, we see the God of faithfulness fulfill His Word. Exactly what Joseph prophesied would would happen is exactly what happened in the book of Exodus. God brings up His people out of the land of Egypt. He brings them up. And then at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24, after that first generation wanders in the wilderness for 40 years, and after they enter into the promised land and and they they, uh, uh, conquered the Canaanites, they subdue their enemies in the promised land. And Joshua 24 tells us they take those bones of Joseph almost 500 years since he died. They take that same skeleton And they take it to that same spot, the cave of Machpelah, and they rest that dead body right beside great-great-granddaddy, right beside great-granddaddy, right beside uh, granddaddy and daddy, and Joseph is sitting right, it's a cave full of bones, still there, awaiting the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of God. The faithful God keeps His promise And the ultimate fulfillment, we're still awaiting it. They will be raised from the dead 
upon the return of Christ. And this is one move that we make as we transition from the Old Testament to the New. Is that land promise, the land of Canaan in the Old Testament, it becomes expanded in the New. And it becomes a promise for believers, you and me, who trust in Jesus, to inherit the whole earth. Not just the land of Canaan. Whole earth. New earth where righteousness dwells. No more sin. No more death. Now I want to take a few moments to try to sum up the whole book of Genesis. And what this book is intended to do in our lives. And so we started with a summary of the main point. Of the themes that are taught to us in the book of Genesis. This is a little different question. This is the so what question. Uh, one, one is the content of the book of Genesis, main point. The other question is about the intent of the book of Genesis, the aim of the book of Genesis. What's it trying to do in your life? And this is my summary of the main takeaway, the main application as we walk away from a careful four, five year long study of this book. Genesis was written... To prepare the people of God for exile. By calling us to trust in our faithful God. Whose covenant promises are stronger than sin and death. The book of Genesis was written to teach you. How to be an exile, a sojourner and a pilgrim in this world. How to walk by faith. In this world, had a trust in the promises of God. And I want to unpack that last phrase the promises that are stronger than both sin and death. And so Genesis has, has carefully painted a portrait for us of a faithful God who keeps his promises in spite of human death. I mean, you just start back. Every godly man that the Scriptures have zoned in on, and woman, throughout the whole book of Genesis, the one thing in common that they have, and they died. Godly men and women die. The promise of God, the faithfulness of God continues. His promises are stronger than death. All these funeral narratives that we've been hitting as we close the book of Genesis, they all land right here. The promises of God are stronger than death. And they're meant to produce in us a faith, a future-oriented faith. Faith that looks to another world. Not to earthly fulfillment, not to your best life now. A faith that looks through death to the world to come. I want you to think about all the things that God has promised Christians that won't be yours until you die and are raised from the dead. Everything else that God has promised you is like an appetizer, an hors d'oeuvre. All the other stuff, that's the main course. That's the, that's the real good stuff. The actual marrow of the promises of the gospel, the eternal promises. He's promised all who trust Him that your bones, even if they rot for 500 years in a cave, God says, I'll raise you from the dead. You'll never taste death again. You, 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 will, have, uh, you will be raised never to die. The, the, the body uh, of, of sin will be raised an incorruptible body. You will never again know sin. For the first time in your life, you will know what it's like to worship Jesus with no sin. And the best part about it is that it never ends. We will be with the Lord forever. Forever. And I want to challenge you. If you got anything better than that in this world, let's talk about it. There's nothing that can compare to these eternal promises of the gospel. Genesis makes us pilgrims. It teaches us to be sojourners. You can say it this way. Genesis is not for Christians whose portion is in this world. Genesis is for sojourners and pilgrims on their way to the heavenly city that, that we are fully convinced that the real inheritance 
is in the world to come. Resurrection glory. Promises of God are stronger than death. Major theme in the book of Genesis. Do you believe it? Are you trusting in the Lord to do things in your life after you die? After they lay you six feet in the ground. That phrase in verse 20 shows us another theme running through the book of Genesis. And I don't want us to miss this. I'm going to read it again. Joseph responds to his doubting brothers. And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, phrases like that have a long history of messing with the way that we think. Long history. Every one of us are born into this world with natural but wrong ideas about God. And then we begin to read the Bible And the Bible begins to show us all the things that we believe about God that are actually wrong. (coughs) Oh, I always thought God was like this, but in fact, He's like this. And one of the things that consistently happens is God is much greater. God is much bigger. God is much more holy, much more sovereign than we ever dreamed He was. And this statement certainly fits in that category. We are told in these words... That God is so sovereign that sinners can mean a sin for evil and this same sovereign God can mean that same act for good. It's total sovereignty. Once we begin to understand these things about God, there are no nuances. He's completely and totally sovereign. If He's sovereign over human sin, there's nothing that can stop Him. And this is what Joseph lays out For his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And that means that this God is faithful, not only in spite of human death. He's also faithful in spite of human sin. You can say it this way. The God of Genesis, he will not be stopped. Holy men will die. God's faithfulness will continue. God's people will sin. God's people will be sinned against. The faithfulness of God will continue. He will not be stopped by human sin. He will not be stopped by human death. These principles, they climax, gloriously climax in the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're having trouble understanding how the same act could be meant by sinners for evil, but by God for good. I want you to go there with me for just a moment to the cross, the bloody cross of Jesus Christ. We are told that the the sinless Son of God was crucified on a Roman cross. He was executed. It is the worst sin that has ever been committed in the entire history of this world. The sinless Son of God was murdered and butchered like a lamb on the cross. They meant it against Jesus for evil. It was the most evil act that's ever been done, ever, period. The crucifixion of Christ. And yet we have this glorious reminder of these themes coming together. They meant evil against Jesus. But God meant that same act, that bloody crucifixion for good. Think about how glorious the good news of the gospel is. This is how sovereign our saving God is. That He takes the worst sin that has ever been committed. And He, through that same act, works salvation for sin for all who trust Him. Sinners mean it. For evil, but He works it for good. And that brings us to this glorious summary of the book of Genesis. What or who can stop this God? What or who can, can stop this God? If the book of Genesis was aimed to make you a man or a woman of faith, think about how much this feeds faith. Nothing can stop your God from keeping His Word. Nothing. Death cannot stop your God. 
Sin in your life cannot stop your God. Listen, whether you commit that sin or whether that sin was committed against you, is anything, is anything too difficult for this God, this saving God of glory to work for your good and His glory. Nothing can stop Him. Psalm 115 verse 3 tells us, Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. When we trust in Him, we trust in the mighty rock. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. So I want you to have this takeaway. The book of Genesis was written to remove any barriers that we would have in trusting God. That's what it means that it's preparing us for exile. We're heading into hundreds of different situations in this room where we're going to be tested to trust God, trust God, trust in Him, trust in His Word, trust in His promises. And God has given us this precious gift in the book of Genesis to remove every barrier that we would dream to have that would stand in the way of God's people trusting Him. I want to close by holding out this promise in Romans 8. This comes from a God who cannot lie. Romans 8, 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up our souls to You today. God, we ask, Lord, that You would visit the preaching of Your Word with power today, Lord. God, we ask that the saints would be equipped today. That Your church would be built up today. Build us up in faith, Lord. God, I pray for these precious brothers and sisters. This flock that You love, Lord. I pray that You would equip us to live like sojourners as we pass through this world. Lord, I pray that You would strengthen our faith as a local church. Lord, I pray that You would help us to walk through hardships of this life. Many different kinds, many different ways. Lord, I pray that You would strengthen our faith to even walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I pray that You would raise up disciples of Jesus in our midst that trust You beyond death. Lord, we ask that You would make us progressively those disciples who truly believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, we love You. God, we pray for the lost today, those in this room whose portion is in this world. God, we pray that you would call them today to abandon the riches of this world and to receive the riches of Jesus as greater wealth than anything this world could ever offer them. Lord, reveal the glory of Christ to them even today. God, we ask you these things, Lord, do it for our good. And most of all, God, we ask you to do it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.